This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. And it is nine minutes past the hour of 10 o'clock. So, as you know, on a Thursday, we have our leadership dialogue. And I'm really, really uh, excited and looking forward to the conversation we're about to have with Justice Navi Pillay, an acclaimed jurist who, uh, as a prominent South African, has also seen her life's work lead her to the International Criminal Court uh, at The Hague. Uh, and has worked extensively within the UN system, even assuming the position of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights between the years 2008 and 2014. She's presided over quite a few matters of international jurisprudence that um, uh, interrogate the application of international law and even the specificities like what constitutes a genocide in uh, cases such as the Gambia versus Myanmar. So in terms of events that transpired exactly one week ago when South Africa presented its case to the International uh, Court of Justice in the Netherlands, um, she is well versed to point to us what the bench the, the, that chorus of 15 judges are going to have to look at. What I'm not going to ask her to do is comment on the merits of the case that's still being adjudicated uh, by judges at the ICJ, but she can certainly tell us what they're looking for in terms of the principles of international law, the tenets of international law, the application of the Geneva Conventions, and other international protocols that define how countries should be behaving. One, in instances of conflict and war. Two, just in terms of uh, applying and respecting the sovereignty of one nation and another. And thirdly, recognizing every global citizen's human rights, regardless of whether those citizens come from a nation state or are stateless or are in a self-governing territory. So a lot has been happening in international affairs and we thought this would be a really important opportunity to speak to those who have overseen and presided over many cases that define the norms and standards of international affairs to talk to us. Uh, She herself uh, has had a stellar career in law, um, having been part of uh, a group of lawyers who established the first woman-led practice in KwaZulu-Natal all the way back in 1967 uh, and being part of the defense teams that represented anti-apartheid activists and raising and sounding the alarm of the torture and the human rights violations they endured whilst incarcerated as political prisoners in the country, others on Robben Island as well. And so may we welcome warmly acclaimed international jurist and judge, Justice Navi Pillay. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning, Lerato. Thank you for that very comprehensive introduction of the law and my work. Uh, and let me say I want to congratulate Power FM for focusing uh, on this very important subject 
and because you know we all have a responsibility to make people aware every single one of us can understand international law it's true we won't be able to argue it unless we research it and know it properly but every south african has an understanding of the law and uh, national law in particular and now because of this case i noticed a great deal of interest in how international law works Well we really we really appreciate your time and we are really really so honored to have somebody as distinguished as yourself uh willing to speak with us this morning um on the leadership dialogue. So let's just start off with your appreciation and commitment to the field of human rights law. It almost seems as if fighting for human rights is in your DNA all the way from the 1960s right up until today. You have never wavered. You have never declined an opportunity to speak up. What are the circumstances or even the injustices that you witnessed early in your career that said to you this is the field of law that I'm de- dedicating my life's work to? Yes um when you grow up poor and discriminated you want you look for justice and accountability so we all did i grew up in a very poor suburb of clarewood uh, unfortunately we were all racially divided so you went to indian schools but you still had the second hand books and desks from the white schools um and i struggled to get uh, articles from white law firms or even a job after I qualified because they told me bluntly you're married what if you fall pregnant or is your father rich will you be able to bring us business uh, and also we cannot have white secretaries taking instructions from black people so when you get those kind of obstacles in your way then you know we were all involved seriously in the struggle some of some people played spectacular roles some landed on robin island but the vast majority of us did what we could within our expertise and our mm. experience so i knew that i want to be a human rights lawyer i could have become an advocate earned money straight away but i spent two years mm. uh, serving articles uh and uh, because i wanted to work with people mm. now if you take the women who came to me they'll come and cry they've been uh, abused or battered at home at first because that's how university trained us at mm. first i had no sympathy for them why are these women crying and so i learned my lessons from other women because they said to me we came to you because you're a woman and you will understand mm. so i developed the ability to listen to people and to understand their points of view all this served me very well later yeah the some of the things i did is yes address torture brought uh, applications in the harry gola case and the kadahashan these are terrorism trials and also i brought this application which for the very first time spelled out the rights of prisoners on robin island mm-hmm. and we won that successfully in the Cape High Court it felt out that prisoners are not property they have rights they have a right to a lawyer they cannot be punished in addition they should have the prison regulations and they have a right to study they have a right to work and so on and you know this also benefited president mandela who was serving mm. on robben island at the time yeah 
Now, why do we do this? You know, you think, what can I do? So in life, you know, I have no t- I don't have the time to tell you, but in life, I seem to have always been the first to tackle something. <laughs> and I think that this is how good lawyers should function yeah. and judge it. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's apt that we're speaking to you this week also where uh, uh, the world observed Martin Luther King Day because he said, you know, evil mm. prevails when good men and women are silent. So I guess you speak up because you see something wrong and you have to have the courage of your convictions. And that tells us a lot about who you are. But what you are explaining to me is that when you face poverty, um, discrimination, gender stereotyping, um, then you are facing the social prejudices that create these very unfair artificial obstacles to your ability to self-actualize. And when society creates barriers to your ability to self-actualize based on these very narrow and crude definitions of wealth or education or gender, then it's a human rights violation and somebody has to do something about it. You're quite right, Lerato. You know, uh, and people expect South Africans to take a moral high ground for, for our continent provide leadership there. When I uh, was uh, nominated by President Mandela to the international, the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, that's where the genocide took mm-hmm. place. It was based in Arusha. And as I walked on the streets of Arusha, the children and ordinary citizens will recognize me. And they'll follow me and scream, Mandela, Bafana, Bafana. <laughs> And many people said things like this to me. Um, you are South African and we know you work hard. We trust you. Mm. So we have to deliver on that trust because the rest of Africa did, did help us in mm. our struggle. Mm. I, so that's a positive reaction if you, if you suffered. Mm. You don't um, you know, go back. And, kill. and this is a message we got from the ruling party yeah. and from the way our constitution has been yeah. drawn. And you can see the difference now when you look at President Mandela's approach about never again. And now Prime Minister Netanyahu's approach of every time that there's an Israeli killed or wounded, then they go on a retaliation causing many more deaths and uh, killings and violence uh, as is unfolding before our eyes now. So there's two different kinds of leadership. Which one do we want to be guided by? Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that in a moment. Firstly, as you say, you know, uh, the South Africa then when you began your law career and the South Africa now, the fundamental distinction, other than the fact that that was an apartheid nationalist fascist state and this is an inclusive democracy, whatever the limitations, it's that human and civil rights culture embedded in the Constitution. Could you help us understand the distinction between human rights as universal rights and civil rights as personal liberties? Because I think in the modern day, many South Africans, we are grappling with this. Where you say, I've got rights, and it doesn't matter if my rights encroach on your rights. They are my rights. And then people have to say, no, your rights 
cannot encroach on another person's rights. There are no limitless rights in that way. So could you draw for us this fine line between civil liberties and human mm-hmm. rights? Yes. You know, um, the, uh, for instance, black Americans talk in terms of civil, civil liberties because their first struggle was for the voting areas, votes, and so on. Ours was for liberation from oppression and a struggle against apartheid, which is discrimination. And and you are quite right. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is now 75 years old and was written at the time the UN was established, sets out all the rights that are that every human being is entitled to because the person is human. Uh, you know, I was addressing little children at a primary school. I often do that when I'm asked. This was uh, happened to be in Canada, and they asked me to explain to the children what are human rights. And I said, well, human rights are rights that we have because we are human. And this little child put up her hand and said, well, that's common sense. Why are you telling us this? <laughs> so it's wonderful that each... T- it's a, you know, you don't have to teach that to young children. They understand right. But inside the halls of international institutions such as United Nations, you'll be surprised. They don't even want to hear the word human rights mm-hmm. uh, because they like the situation where if you get anything like a pension uh, or, or tax relief, the state would like you to, the government would like you to think they're doing you a favor. So nothing is a favor. They are dispensing taxpayers' money, and people in South Africa know that these are rights that they claim. You hear the language today from school children, university students, labor unions. I like during the student protests, university protests that we saw a few years ago, mm-hmm. the students were carrying uh, posters that said, do we not have, do the poor not have the right to education? See, it's a good point. The African Charter speaks of individual rights and group rights. So Mm. that is very important to understand, that you cannot exercise your individual rights at the expense of trampling on the rights of other individuals or of a group. I think that's what you just mentioned now, Lerato. Yeah. yeah, and I'm raising it because before we go to the international, uh, I think it was even Ibrahim Harvey today who says, you know, the irony is South Africa presented a stellar case on humanity last week, and yet inside the country, we are not even practicing some of this humanity. And that's the irony of the thing. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the issue of illegal immigration. Now, whilst we're not condoning people being in South Africa illegally, The Constitution states how we deal with minorities, even people who don't have the status of being here, like the right to their children having an education whilst we're trying to figure out the status of their parents or health care provision when somebody arrives at a hospital, regardless of whether they have a passport or not. Now, I'm not the one saying that. Those are things embedded in the Constitution as part of the human rights discourse, and yet Often South Africans are struggling to understand these very basic things. And they think that when you raise them, um, you are supporting illegal immigration. Whereas what you're saying is I am supporting the fundamentals 
of the human rights embedded in the Constitution, whilst also encouraging the state to do the right thing to uh, naturalize those who must be naturalized and deport those who must be deported. But it all has to happen within a framework of human rights. You know, not only South Africa, but many countries, Europe in particular, they don't have a plan or policy to address uh, irregular migrants, to address refugee situations, but most probably because here in South Africa and in Europe, there's such overwhelming numbers of poor people coming in both uh, as uh, labor seekers as well as uh, seeking refuge. So one then has to uh, uh, also address the alarm of the national and their rights uh, to to work and help and so on. Mm. And you are right. Our constitution gives the constitutional rights to all people in this country who are who are within this country. So that includes uh, uh, migrants, refugees, and immigrants. Mm. who do not have their regular status as yet. The recommendations of of the Human Rights World and that I made as High Commissioner of Human Rights to Europe in particular mm-hmm. was establish a regular pathway where people can get residential status or apply for citizenship. You know, keep strictly to that. You have to control your borders. We have very porous borders where people are slipping in. There has to be some control, some regulation. If you are going to have open doors and let everybody in, then you have to do that by providing scope for housing, education, and jobs as well. So even us in South Africa, A, we don't, the government doesn't have a proper plan, and B, we ourselves are guilty of prejudice against um, outsiders, particularly from other parts of Africa, and we want to blame them for, for crime. This is really unfair to them. It's it's a prejudice. We suffered prejudice, discrimination, and stereotyping. We should not be doing that. Mm-hmm. We should have a more sympathetic view and see, contribute to what kind of plan and control. You and I obviously can't control the border, so that is clearly the responsibility of the authorities. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's it's just an issue that comes up a lot and um it's so disturbing when you hear the rhetoric around it because you think to yourself, but there's a constitution it spells out very clearly what these universal rights are for housing, for healthcare, for education. And when politicians then don't even espouse the values embedded in the constitution to which they've sworn oaths My goodness, it boggles my mind. Another issue that baffles people in South Africa before we now turn our attention abroad is this issue of the basic right to life being a human right. And they say, look at the rising crime rates, particularly violent crimes like rape and murder. And really, if the police can't get a handle on it, if the justice system can't uh, enforce tighter sentences, and the parole boards are lax, then we should reinstate the death penalty. And then lawyers say, no, we can't, because the right to life is an intrinsic human right. Please help us with this. Oh, dear Liberato, you know who you're speaking to. I'm the president of the International Commission Against the Death Penalty. 
It's based in uh, Madrid, and South Africa is one of the founding uh, countries. There are about 22 countries supporting that. And the members are former presidents, prime ministers, um, and government representatives. Maybe one or two um, UN officials. So I'm the president, and we have done a great deal of education all over the world towards abolishing the death penalty because it's uh, cruel and inhuman, and it has not been proved to be a deterrent. In countries where the death penalty is still used and used profusely, like in the Middle East, in the United States, some of the states, yeah, they can't show that they have less crime because they passed the death penalty. So that's very crucial when judges are passing a sentence. They have to provide for uh, rehabilitation of the individual and whereas the death penalty is so final there are so many people who were proven innocent with dna evidence particularly in the united states and they would have been killed they were in death row for like 20 years until proven innocent so we must rise above the immediate emotions we feel over some of the violence that we are seeing around us. My personal view, Lerato, is, you know, we can do much more. No child should be injured or gone missing. Each parent should be a parent of every child. The village, the town should keep an eye to protect children, to protect women. Mm. So we have responsibilities too. Let's not just focus on the court and the sentence because that's after the event. Damage has been done. The woman has been raped or killed. It's after the event, you see. We have to focus more on prevention, change our culture, and and develop towards some very progressive countries in the world where there is very little crime. And they don't have the death penalty. We're in conversation with Justice Navanetham Navi Pillay, South African jurist, former UN uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, former President of the uh, International uh, Tribunal, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, somebody who has sat on the bench at the International Criminal Court and who works on matters of international law. And uh, after the headlines, she's going to be helping us understand what the South African case against Israel was really about. Some have said it's about the law. Others have said it's about bringing back ethics and morality in the application of the law. We're going to hear what the senior jurist has to say. Power Talk, the Leadership Dialogue. Yes, and our Leadership Dialogue today is none other than highly acclaimed, esteemed, reputable, respected uh, Justice Navi Pillay, a lawyer, a judge, a former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, a president of the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in Arusha, Tanzania, a recipient of numerous international awards such as the Otto Hahn Peace Medal and the Gruber Prize for Women's Rights, and an author as well who's written uh, many, many publications uh, and um Uh, essays around the application of human rights and international law. And we're speaking to her this week, not least because she's who she is, but also because we're trying to make sense of why South Africa took it upon itself 
to go to the International Court of Justice, which is a UN legal body, and raise uh, the alarm about what it says are acts of genocide in the atrocities currently committed in Gaza, saying this is not just about war being a horrible business. This looks like an orchestrated campaign to exterminate an ethnic group of people known as Palestinians from the face of the earth. Of course, South Africa's arguments presented in the most eloquent way last week, Thursday, Israel then presented their case on Friday and the bench of senior international judges, including South Africa's own former Deputy Chief Justice Dikhang Moseneke, now sitting to weigh up the various arguments to decide whether the, what we've seen in Gaza, as horrible as it is, is it just the unfortunate result of a war or is it a genocide? And uh, Navi Pillay is going to help us understand why without, and I have to stress, without going into the merits of the case. She's not a justice on that bench and it would be unfair for us to expect her to make pronunciations on their behalf. So Justice Pillay, thank you so much for staying with us. Let us now go to, now that we've established some of the fundamental distinctions of what human rights are, civil rights are, what's embedded in the South African constitution and what those universal rights are in terms of the normative values of the country. Let us now go to the ICJ. First and foremost, what is it? Because there was also some confusion as to the ICJ at The Hague and the ICC also in the Netherlands what are they and what makes them different? Mm. Um, yes, I don't blame them for being confused. So the ICC is a recent court. So let's start with the ICJ. That's the International Court of Justice. It was established in the, in the building donated by the Carnegie family. It's called the Peace Palace in The Hague. It was established at the same time as the United Nations was established. So just as the United Nations membership is limited to states, not to individuals or institutions, similarly the court only has jurisdiction over states. Only states' parties can access that court. And mainly it's there to interpret international law or to settle disputes, such as boundary disputes uh, between states. The International Criminal Court, and, and of course, by the way, as you already said, Lerata, so I am a judge ad hoc in the International Court of Justice in the Gambia versus Myanmar matter, mm. nominated by the Gambia. Uh, but the International Criminal Court is recent. It's the world's first permanent criminal court where they can arrest and charge individuals for very serious crimes such as genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression. They haven't tried anyone for the crime of aggression as Mm. yet. Mm. And that court is also based in the Hague. I was among the first 18 judges elected to that court. I served on the appeals bench of that court, the International Mm. Criminal Court, which, which cannot charge states or parties or companies it can only charge individuals. Okay. See, and it, it can punish, whereas the ICJ doesn't have the power to penalize anyone, although it can impose fines, such as the fine it imposed on Sebrenetra, 
for failing uh, for failing to prevent right. sorry the fine imposed in respect of the genocide in Srebrenica against former Yugoslavia mm-hmm. yeah. failing to prevent genocide that's the ICJ oh, okay so so just to simplify it for myself because uh, now today I finally understand it properly so UN member states if they have a dispute, an argument, or are, or, or are at war, they would go to the ICJ because the ICJ as a UN body adjudicates matters of country to country, recognized sovereign states. But in wars, it's not always just uh, the defense forces of nations that are at play. In the Congo, for instance, you've had warlords who are also at play, and those are not state actors, and they commit atrocities. So there needed to be a platform where they can also be held accountable as individuals, and that's the ICC. And this is why at the ICC we've seen um, charges brought against militia of the Lord's Resistance Army, some of those who are actors in eastern Congo, those from the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia. They have gone there as individuals, but countries at war go to the ICJ. Now, one of the dilemmas here is that Israel is a nation state, but Palestine is not. That's the whole dispute, is that Palestine needs to become a nation state. So the political actors in what we call Palestine are non-state actors, Hamas. And so Hamas can't go to the ICJ, even though Israel can. Is that correct? The ICJ does not have jurisdiction over Hamas. There were a number of questions. You know, well, why isn't the Hamas being hauled before the court, the ICJ? Well, the ICJ does not have jurisdiction over um, militias and, and groups. But the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court does have. He can bring charges against Hamas. Uh, There are various conditions to it, but he can. Okay, so this case at the ICJ has to be country to country concerning violations of international law in uh, in a war situation. Hence, South Africa uh, taking up a case against Israel. If anybody's got issues around Hamas's behavior, and I'm sure there are many, that would have to go to the International Criminal Court. I'm just trying to make sure we, we are clear and understand that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for explaining that to listeners. Okay. So now we understand. So we're going to focus on the state to state issue. Why would South Africa, so far away from this conflict, not even a party to this conflict, jumping the, you know, the efforts of an Arab League and many other players inside the region? Why would a country so far away take up a case and bring it to the ICJ concerning? Israel and its uh, behavior in uh, Gaza? Firstly, in terms of the law, that was the question that was asked at the ICJ when the Gambia brought an application against Myanmar uh, as part of the organization of Islamic countries. And And Myanmar's lawyers argued that the Gambia doesn't have jurisdiction because the victims don't come from the Gambia. They got nothing to do with this. And you know that I'm ad hoc judge on that matter at the ICJ. And yes. we ruled, yes, that as a member, a, a signatory to the Geneva Convention, Gambia does have jurisdiction because 
the country like South Africa. South Africa does have jurisdiction to bring this application because it's a signatory to the uh, the Genocide Convention, and genocide is so serious that every country has an obligation to ensure prevention of genocide. Um, Mm. So there's that precedent, the Gambia precedent for South Africa. Now, why South Africa brought this application? Well, I wouldn't know the inside story, you have to ask government mm. how they made this decision. However, I was at the UN when all this was happening from October to December. And there was so much frustration from everybody, particularly high-level, the Secretary General and high-level UN officials, because they are the ones on the front line trying to get water in, trying to save people, you just get humanitarian aid in. And yet, after meeting after meeting of the Security Council, which has the ultimate jurisdiction to intervene, they've done so in Africa, they set up a mission in the Congo DRC, for instance. Um, they can have a UN presence, they should have sent a UN presence immediately to take charge, and that would have stopped the killing. But nothing happened. The United States used its veto to stop any mention of the word ceasefire. Yet you and I and all our listeners, when we're dealing with children fighting or some skirmish, we immediately intervene to stop them so that we can talk about what the dispute is. Mm. So what the world was saying is they must stop the killing. But since the UN bodies, could, the members could not come to a decision, it's true the majority of states in the Security Council all had a resolution ready on ceasefire, but it was vetoed by the US. Right. And so the talk in the corridors of the UN is some states should now bring an application to the International Court of Justice under provisional orders request mm. under the Genocide Convention. Mm. Mm. So really, South Africa has been hailed by everyone out there who's writing to me and who's in touch with us. Just lots of courage to bring this application because it's true. They will raise the uh, anger and opposition of Israel, the United States, and, and quite a few European countries. We may, which is totally wrong, but for them to penalize us, but that may well happen in terms of mm. trade and so on. However, that's why it took courage, and as the South African uh, President Mr. Ramaphosa said, South Africa yeah. is acting on principle, yeah. and the principle is you have to save civilian lives. You have okay. to prevent genocide. There are quite a few things you've said there which I'd like mm. to unpack, so I'm just going to break it down firstly with the meanings. So in 1948, um, there was the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide that was introduced within the framework of the work that the United Nations was doing. And then a year later came the Geneva Conventions, which ultimately morphed into what is called humanitarian laws of armed conflicts, how you're supposed to treat and protect um, Um, the frail, the sick, injured soldiers and civilians. So there's two very comprehensive protocols that govern how you're supposed to handle 
yourself, how soldiers and national armies are supposed to handle themselves in a situation of armed conflict. And these are the two things that keep on being mentioned in this Israel-Gaza uh, story. Is one, South Africa says, definitely a violation on the uh, Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And then we then talk about the Geneva Convention. So explain to us what is meant by a genocide and why there is a sense that what's happening in Gaza is a genocide whether the bench rules it or not. Why is there a sense that that's what we're looking at? Right. So international law does not prohibit war, but it regulates it. And it regulates it under those Geneva Conventions that you mentioned. For instance, that the primary responsibility is to protect civilians. So you can't have indiscriminate killings and bombings. You have to take your military measures must match the uh, goal or target you want to achieve. The uh, Genocide Convention was, was not prosecuted at all until 1997, 1998. Do you know what happened then? Well, that is the Rwanda Tribunal in Africa, where, the, where I served as a judge. I'm part of that judgment, the world's first judgment on genocide, where we spelt out the elements of the crime, what has to be proved, in order to uh, determine that it was genocide. And the main thing is, you, it lists uh, a, a lot of activities like murder, torture, inhumane acts, all of that done with that intent, like murder will be intention to kill. But for genocide, you have, you have another overarching intent, and that is that that act, the murder, the torture, rape, has to be done with the intention of destroying uh, a group in whole or in part. And the group, since this, this, this came out of the World War II experience, they have four groups, national, ethnic, racial, and religious. So it has to be targeted against one of those groups or one or more of those groups. So mm. all that we spelt out in the world's first conviction of genocide um, so in order to bring this case before the ICJ, the, and it, there are two prongs here. The bigger prong is uh, South Africa has accused Israel of committing genocide. Well, that will take a few years to decide that, what we call on the merit. This application is, in the meantime, while you're deciding the main case, court, please can you safeguard the civilians there and you get them to stop the genocide, take steps to prevent the genocide. That's what we ordered uh, at Gambia's request for Myanmar. And now the Myanmar military government is providing regular reports to us on the steps they are taking okay. to safeguard civilians in that Rakhine state. Okay. Sorry to give you all those details, but this is all happening in our lifetime, so it's important to know right. the, that South Africa is in a strong position in following up on these cases that have already right. been decided by this court. Okay, so, so for the provisional measures, what we in South Africa call an interdict or an interim order, for this, they have to prove gener some aspect of genocide intent. Intent. Uh, yeah. intent, not fully, but just show that it's plausible uh, that they had this intent. Now, how do you prove the intent? You look, you outline the act. That's what, that's what... The, 
the Rwanda tribunal mm. heard all the acts, mm. massive killings and so on. Mm. And then you look at the speeches made by politicians, uh, and in this case, South African lawyers outlined many, many ex- convincing examples of speech that is insightful of genocide. Right. Okay, so so what I'm understanding you're saying is in the long term, yes, um, there might be uh, value in interrogating whether a genocide has been committed, but that's not something that can just be established right now and certainly with the submissions last week. But what can be established is whether there have been violations of humanitarian law as espoused in the Geneva Conventions, whether civilians are being unfairly targeted, they're not combatants, children as well, and humanitarian corridors, just getting food and water. We know that those blockades have happened. And in the in the interim, it's an interdict to stop that from happening. And then you can build the case of genocide going forward. And that's really where this issue is coming in. And you're using the words strong case, merit, which says to me you believe South Africa was able to show this to be the to be in fact well, the case at this stage they have to establish a plausible case of genocidal intent okay. and they used all the violations of humanitarian law the denial of water food and so on as acts okay. that plausibly point to genocide it points to destruction of the group. But that's the High Commissioner for Human Rights mandate and the UN's mandate, the humanitarian law of aid and so on. And that's what what we do and I did in the past. We document all the acts of violations of the Geneva Conventions. But here, Lerato, in the ICJ, the jurisdiction only applies under genocide convention. This is why one of the requirements is South Africa has to show that there's a dispute between South Africa and Israel, in this case, on the interpretation and implementation of the Genocide Convention. Mm-hmm. South Africa says there's a dispute because they're not protecting civilians and they're committing genocide. And we gave them notice, we raised this matter. So all that about declaring whether there's a dispute. Now, that's a technical point. If they don't establish that, South Africa can South Africa's request can be thrown out okay. on that ground alone if there hasn't been a wow. dispute. Okay. That's why you heard the notes of a bar. You have to inform the other, listen, we disagree on, on this and we're going to mm. bring the case. But the, the court hasn't in previous cases strictly laid out what you have to mm-hmm. say or do in right. those notes verbal. Okay. So it doesn't mean you have to give South Africa to even give notes to Israel that they are bringing this application. So it's quite complicated. I think that they have ad- addressed it adequately, but we'll see how the judges right. decide on that technical point of whether a dispute has been declared. Right. I think what we just need to do is just process everything you've said and then we'll come back uh, into the latter part of our conversations. We thank you for your time. Yes, indeed. I am Lerato Mbele. This is the Leadership Dialogue on uh, Power Talk. And our discussion today is Justice Navi Pillay, acclaimed international jurist, who's been explaining aspects of the South African case brought before the International Criminal Court, um, or rather the International Crim- uh, Court of Justice, the ICJ, and definitions around 
uh, humanitarian law, uh, genocide, different categories of genocide from national identities to ethnicities to religion, precedents that have been set by um, those who adjudicated the International Criminal Court on Rwanda, where the first big case of genocide was brought before um, an international body and other aspects as well with the Gambia bringing forward um, a case of uh, genocide um, against the Rohingya people uh, perpetrated uh, by the government of or the military of Myanmar and uh, Justice Pillay has been involved in many of these cases and is well versed in what aspects of international law, jurisprudence and jurisdiction uh, are being considered. Now having said everything as we wind down our conversation there's two things uh, Justice Pillay. First mm-hmm. we've already heard utterances from Israel that says that yeah this is for them is like a technicality. Whatever the justices of the ICJ find, they're not going to uh, see it as binding because they're a sovereign state and they have a moral duty to protect the state of Israel and the citizens of the state of Israel against uh, Hamas and its actions, which unfortunately uh, we know Hamas was the aggressor in October. So for them, That's what they've said. And then the second issue is in South Africa, people have watched. They've been truly impressed. But what they are saying is, so we've got a government that can go to the rest of the world and speak so eloquently about international law. And yet in the country, we see pervasive poverty, continued racial inequality, gender-based violence, um, the lack of provision of basic services, fundamental violations of human rights and the provision of social justice. And yet they go to the world and they can speak this way, but they fail to honor these very principles in the country. What do you say to these two things? We are a democracy and we all have rights to speak up, question, criticize. That's what we're doing. So let's continue to address our national issues and things we are unhappy about things that have not been implemented because we should hold our government accountable. So accountability is important. We're very fortunate that we are in a democracy now. I mean, those of us who lived through apartheid knew that we cannot make this government accountable to anything. Uh, So while we address our own issues, we do have a role internationally. And, uh, you know, all of us cared about this the killing of, uh, firstly, the Hamas attacks that resulted in even sexual violence, uh, the taking of hostages. These are all war crimes. And we said so. You know, I chaired the commission, UN Commission of Inquiry on Israel and Palestine. And so I told you I was there at the UN. Mm -hmm. And within days of October 7th, we issued a statement condemning that attack saying they're committing war crimes, demanding the release of hostages and and, and calling for inquiries. But the, the retaliation on the part of Israel is what, is what concerns the whole world now. We cannot bear to see, we can't be outside, even as South Africans fighting our local issues, we cannot not care about what's happening. And so therefore we should be proud that our government, but particularly proud of this legal team for putting a a case together and taking it before the International Court of Justice. We are so grateful for your time, for your expertise, and just for simplifying complex law uh, for our ears. And uh, we wish you strength 
and Godspeed. Yeah. Justice Navi Pillay, uh, international judge. It's time for the news. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.